Hello and welcome to episode 361 of the Fabulous Pelton Cast, sponsored by our friends at Pagliacci Pizza. I'm your co-host, Kevin Pelton. Justin Carcino. And we're coming to you in different locations today. I'm in Seattle, Washington, home of the four-time WNBA champion Storm. I'm coming to you from Renton, Washington, home of the Super Bowl 48 champion Seattle Seahawks. Well, Pelton Cast Live Spring 2023 is in the books. And it was successful enough that the poll I posted today, what was the highlight? Uh, the last place option was the food, even though we had free food, not only from our sponsors, Pagliacci Pizza, not only from Taco Time Northwest, but also from our fan vote for Seattle's Best Donuts, Dojoy. It was an incredible spread. Thanks to all of those companies for their support and for uh, donating their food. Uh, I, I think a pretty good sign, though, about how how entertaining the show was and a testament really to everyone that we had on stage with us. Uh, obviously, having all four co-hosts of Talk and Taco Time, in addition to Jake One and the return of Ben Shorsh, uh, at least one person said KFC Milkshake was their highlight. Uh, the the expertise from Danny Kelly, NFL draft guru at the Ringer. Uh, go check out the Metal Draft. I believe I don't know. I don't know which. I think this is Metal Draft Five. Now we're up to, and then Mike Sean Dugar from the Athletic, who has been posting great Seahawks draft coverage uh, all throughout this process. And then lastly, Alicia Vermillion from Seattle Met Magazine, helping us choose Seattle's best donut. I had a great time. I hope everyone else who came out did. KFC milkshake was pretty incredible. Booing Tristan's show <laughs> takes. Uh, that was also one of my favorite. The parts. booing of the Ichiro takes. My oh, favorite yeah. part was yeah. the one person you claimed there was only one person. I thought there were three. You said there was only so one it, person who, who agreed with you. It me. started out as one who agreed with you. I think over by the time you got to your Jared Kelnick hot takes, I think there might have been a couple of people. I left. rallied a few people. <laughs> you might have won, them, won over. them over. They were like, huh, I'm making some compelling points here. <laughs> Each row was <laughs> <They> that. Wish- <laughs> <laughs> And boring. Uh, I, I love Danny had no idea when you were like, yeah, uh, I forget who he said had boring, or maybe Mike Sean said someone had boring tape. Levis, maybe? Uh-huh. I don't remember. And you were like, yeah, just like each other. <laughs> and Danny had, had no idea. He was blindsided that. by that one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, it was an awesome night at Peltoncast Live. One note for the listener who was not able to make it to Peltoncast Live in Seattle. We do, you may have seen our brand new, very, very hot Talkin' Taco Time merch. Uh, we do have, I think, some quantities of every single size left over. Uh, so I'm going to be putting those online tomorrow for sale in some capacity. I have not figured that out yet, but I need to count them first to see how many we have left. <laughs> and after I do that and figure out w- which place I want to put them online, then they will be available for sale uh, until they're gone. Yeah, we had a couple of people who specifically requested them beforehand, so definitely we'll be able to take care of them. And then uh, uh, everybody else, first come, first serve, I suppose. Yep. And I'll send you that link, Kevin, to tweet out and to share on Instagram for the Talkin' Taco Time merch. Okay, we'll do. Uh, the other thing maybe we should discuss coming out of the live show. Do we want to discuss what we're going to search for next? Wow, I don't even have any ideas. 
I mean, I thought you said last time that you kind of liked the idea of Seattle's best insert beer type here. I I feel like that's kind of that's that's the most meat that we have left on the bone. It's also one that's like very easy to do because we are already drinking beer each week on the podcast anyway. Whereas the barbecue search proved a little little logistically challenging for you. Although I don't want to give up on that. The ongoing barbecue search. Yes. I want to have a conversation about what the beer type is and what it means. If we're talking IPAs, I like what what counts as an IPA? Because there are a lot of things that fall under the umbrella of IPA. I feel like we might need to hone it down to something uh, pretty granular with this one. Instead, of, if you're saying IPA, then it's just like that could be so many different things. We could get into a situation where we're awarding fan votes and best old school <laughs> and best IPA. Um, what are you saying? We might have a confusing bracket. <laughs> there might be a confusing bracket. Or if, if we can narrow it down to me, I'm all about a lager or a pilsner or something like that. If we could do that, because you're uh, uh, scared to drink sour beer with me. Seattle's best sour beer would be the best search. But if you're unwilling to do that, uh, I would like to to hone it down to something. Again, I, I, IPAs might be too general. I'm open to feedback on this, but I think it's it's a compelling idea. Yeah, certainly the listener should weigh in if they have some thoughts. So we we have not determined that yet. We've got some time, fortunately, to uh, make a decision here. But we will not actively be searching for anything on this week's podcast. Thank God. <laughs> but we, I will be drinking a beer in one of those styles you mentioned. Another Italian Pilsner. Hello. These seem to be all the rage lately. Maybe I, we should search for Seattle's yeah, best Italian trend. Pilsner. <laughs> it's going to be kind of a strange, strange search. Seattle's best Italian Pilsner. Maybe they'll Pilsner. finally let us back into the World Cup. Well, uh, maybe they'll finally let, let us back into the Mariners' bullpen. Lucky Envelope Brewing in North Seattle. We have their Italian Pilsner. Uh, the loggerheads at Lucky Envelope Brewing are excited to bring you our dry-hopped Italian-style Pilsner. We brew with great deference the originator of this style, Agostino Arioli, using all European malts and hops for notes of crackers, honey, Flowery geranium and lemon peel. You drinking anything this week? I'm, separately I'm drinking here? a Bud Light Chalada because it's summer in Seattle, <laughs> baby. It is 63 degrees and I it is summertime are... in Seattle, Washington. Cue the Fresh Prince and DJ Jazzy Jeff. It's summertime. I feel like spring started on Monday and then it becomes summer by Thursday or Friday. Oh, it's summer today. Like- every, every part that I was trying to go to, we were trying to go uh, play baseball after baseball. Um, just have a little post baseball baseball earlier today. And it was like every single park that I was at was packed of people. It was 63 degrees. I think was the high today. And it was summertime in Seattle, Washington. Let's fucking go. So you're basically doing in uh, a pimp my ride situation here. I heard you like baseball, so I put some baseball with your baseball. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's my life. Shouts to a uh, baby fantasy genius. <laughs> uh, all right, let's get into our toast. Starting with Jordan Everly for scoring the winning goal three minutes into overtime as the Kraken got their first home playoff win ever. In Monday's game four, evening the series against Colorado 2-2. You actually watched some Kraken hockey. I did. I watched some. I, it's not. Un, I watched uh, most of. So, not. I've watched some of most of the playoff games. Okay. 
this was our first experience with uh, playoff hockey overtime. And sadly, there was not a lot of time for <laughs> the tension. To our build first experience. Play- We've watched playoff hockey overtime. This was the Seattle Kraken's first experience with playoff hockey overtime. I've watched it before. But you haven't necessarily had a vested interest, except for the Vancouver Canucks run. Yeah. Which, Lest we forget know, about this ever... Canucks run. I don't. I mean, I don't specifically remember overtimes, but I'm sure they must have happened at some point during their run to the uh, Stanley Cup Finals. But you did successfully, I think, name more members of the 2011 Canucks than Kraken players when we discussed it's going up, last though. week. It's going up. The Kraken players after after we, they we won a home playoff game, all of a sudden I knew two or three more. All, right, all so of a we'll sudden I knew everything of... about Sprong. <laughs> Not his first name, but everything else <laughs> yeah. about Sprong. Chris? <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Uh, we'll we'll have more of that, of course, when we get into the regular uh, roundup portion of the. I guess they're not in the roundup. We've declared. But the sports portion of the podcast. What is the roundup? What <laughs> I, I like the determination between the roundup and not the roundup. Again, the roundup is when you don't talk at all. Oh, so if I talk, then it becomes not the roundup. That's exactly. Really funny. I'll drop it, pepper it of various few things about the San Diego Wave occasionally. It is true. Uh, it's the sadly... Robbie Tobek edition of the Pelton Cast. You really waited a long time on that one. We're thoroughly in the offensive line section of the Pelton cast right <laughs> Each now. Each week. Uh, sadly, by the time Pelton cast live was available as a podcast, go check that out if you haven't already, especially the draft preview in the couple of days remaining before the Seahawks make their two first round picks. Uh, by that point, Randy's prediction of Kraken in five was already oh. impossible, but Kraken in six, still on the table. There we go. Still on the table. Moving on in toast. My prediction, to my prediction Morris of for a... Jared Kelenic hoisting the World Series trophy. Still totally in play. Very much, very much on the table. To Jordan Morris for assisting on the U.S. men's national team's equalizing goal in a thrilling 1-1 draw against Mexico in the Continental Classico oh. last Wednesday. Morris started that one and went the distance at left wing. It was undoubtedly the greatest Continental Classico that is, of all time. I honestly, uh, children dream their entire lives about assisting on a goal in the continental classico it was a pretty nice play by jordan morris i was streaming that uh office at the nba playoff action and i was very worried it was going to be called back from offside for offsides but it was not and uh it was a great soccer is just like my life and baseball they're like hey do you know what would be better than soccer more soccer just like we, we let's make up a tournament. Oh, this tournament matters now, but this is actually the tournament we care about. Oh, the Continental Classico. That's a big one. It's just a chance to sell tickets. Everybody <laughs> cares about whatever that cup is that we now care about. You know, the one, right? I mean, you can't even think of it. For the, uh, well, you're the Champions League final could be coming to America. Did you hear what? that one? The UEFA, I should say, not the CONCACAF. The UEFA They're just going to do it here? Could be played in the U.S. They're just going to fuck it, we're yeah. doing it in the U.S.? Yeah. Wow. It was, that was uh, broken on Men in Blazers with their interview with the president of UEFA. Sepp Blatter? No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I know my stuff. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Nothing, if not uninformed. What is the cup? The cup that in the U.S. were like, no, this is the one we care about now. That was invented like two years ago. 
in MLS? Yeah, or it's like MLS and I think team? like Mexican team. Leagues Cup. Leagues Cup. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Leagues yeah. Cup. Oh, that's the one we care about. I mean, Sounders went to final the finals of Leagues Cup. So <laughs> it's not as important as CONCACAF Champions League since they've it's won It's not that as one, important as Continental Classico. <laughs> <laughs> All right, staying in soccer. Am I the only person who uh, thinks this is stupid? <laughs> no, I okay. don't think you are. We're toasting to an assist of a goal in something called Continental Classico. You know, look, I didn't have anything on the on the toast at that Fair point. Enough. But I've also <laughs> added on the soccer didn't front. Exist. <laughs> I, you know, I wasn't on the. Well, I didn't know there was going to be a success yet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, lastly, you made these notes before last Friday. I did. Oh, wow, yeah, okay. they started the. The Continental Classico was last Wednesday, again. that's when I dropped and, it in. And here. also, thank you to the uh, venue, I don't know if you mentioned this, to Belltown Yacht Club. Yeah, Belltown Yacht Club. Hostess. Awesome incredible, work. Incredible space. Yeah. Looking forward to being back there. Uh, lastly, to longtime Seattle U men's soccer coach Pete Fewing, who retired from that role earlier this month after two stints as their head coach, first from 1988 through 2005, winning NAIA and Division II national championships. Fewing then returned to the post in 2011 with Seattle U having moved up to Division I and led the Red Hawks to five WAC titles, winning WAC Coach of the Year three times to go with three such honors from the GNAC. And I also learned Larry Stone wrote about this in the Seattle Times on Sunday, I think, that Fewing grew up in Burien and played at Highline High School. So he, he is uh, local to us, I guess. So. And and I think, oh, do you have more on him? Just congrats to Pete Ewing on a great career. I think that the the only part of his career that I heard that he regrets is not being able to coach in the Continental Classico. <laughs> you were taking a drink and I knew you would laugh at this because it's so stupid. It's like, exactly only for you thinks this is funny. <laughs> oh, boy. He'll always remember that one Classico. League's Cup victory, though, for the rest of his life. <laughs> now he can die in peace. Get that on the bingo card. I mean, Fewing has also been uh, also in the article that he played it against Brian Schmetzer in a U eight tournament. Wow! When they were both U eight and then tournament. Yeah. Wow! Yeah, that's so, almost as important uh, as Continental Classico, no, <laughs> the champion of the U eight tournament. You, An assist. You went too far. Congrats on the assist at the U eight <laughs> tournament final. <laughs> Pete Fewing. <laughs> So you've declared no hot takes again this week because I, the Jared Kelnick hot takes from the live show. Or, would you, are would you re-air? Can you pull out the Kelnick hot takes from the live show and drop them in here? Because I think some people don't want to sit through a live show. Uh, but I, I would like them to. I spent time on the PowerPoint. I really worked you at did? it. And my the I spent time on the PowerPoint. The most important part about the PowerPoint and you dropping it in here is that it's definitely an auditory medium. Uh so all of the jokes work very, very well. <laughs> I mean, hopefully, hopefully people already know that you look like Leo Messi. Yeah, they, they won't. They won't need the uh, PowerPoint to show the that. Yeah, yeah, and you've already tweeted the photo of Jared Kellenick as one of my children. So, yes. uh, the most hard to believe part would be uh, Jared Kellenick playing in a CVAC baseball game, uh, but <laughs> the. Drop, the, drop those in, and we'll come back after that. And now, careful, everyone, in the first few rows. Don't burn yourself, because we got live Mariners hot takes coming at you. With a special PowerPoint dedicated to our favorite Frosted Tip son, 
Jared Kalanick. Three RBIs tonight? One RBI. Hey, the you have baseball or Mariners? And Kalanick had all five RBIs? Seven. The best left-handed hitting Mariner since Ken Griffey Jr. Kellenic's swing looks even more like Griffey's than I look like Leo Messi. There it is. Come on. That's a photo of Tristan. I don't know when he got the sleeve. And look. Might be. Look. I know what you're thinking. I understand who you're thinking about. But if I'm being honest, not like talk hot take style here. I really love the player that you're thinking of too, or whatever. I really do. Hall of Fame bound Mariner from the 2000s. I, honestly, he's one of my favorites. There we go, Robinson Cano. <laughs> he was a really good player. And honestly, his career led to Jared Kellenick, so thank you. But, but, if we must compare, Kellenick's current OPS is more than 100 points better than Ichiro's career high OPS. There's a lot of emotions happening. They are giving people MVPs for seasons like this. They are putting people into the All-Star game for 10 plus years for the season that Jared Kellenick is putting on right now, right in front of your eyes. I love, I love, yeah. <laughs> Might be pretty waspy. <laughs> and he's playing better defense, too. Do we have this video loaded? No. That's <laughs> going to take too long catch? for us to load the Did video. Did you see that catch? Ichiro could never. <laughs> but why do we love Jared Kellenick so much? I? We? <laughs> he went to that next slide very quickly. You know what I say? To truly care about something, you have to see the darkness. With Kellenic, you merely adopted the dark, but he was born into it, molded by it. Wait, 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 wait. Sorry, I have to flip to the next, <laughs> next note card. I've defended this man so fucking much. It's like he's one of my 10 to 15 children. I've seriously, I swear to God, I have said stuff like, he's just about to figure it out. His process was great on that strikeout. You should have seen the exit velo on that flyout. It's like Jared Kellenick is one of my 10 to 15 children. In fact, no, he is one of my 10 to 15 children. And you know what? He's my favorite. He is my favorite. Jan's trying to take a photo. That's Grandma, Grandma Jan right there, desperately trying to take a photo of the slideshow. There's no other way for her to get a photo of this. Tough beat for your actual children. Look, they're not 21. But when JK said, that's not quite my tempo, he started going whiplash on AL pitchers. There is now a player from Seattle playing so well that ESPN's Kevin Pelton 
just voted for Walker, Walker Kessler instead of him for Rookie of the Year in the NBA. That's right. Do you three get this as the Italians in the room? He voted for Walker Kessler. This happened. He is. I'm glad there was one other one. He did this. But with a lineup that includes the best young hitter in baseball and Julio Rodriguez, plus Luis Castillo and the rest. Sorry. We gotta think of a more efficient system than these note cards next time. Just know, like this is efficient. Just know, in October, when you see this image, that when Jared Kelenic saw the light, he was already a man. And MLB pitchers, it was nothing but blinding. That's the best hitter in baseball right there, people. That's him. Oh, boy. I thought you were going to get booed a lot more on the Ichiro stuff. It was no. really during the Seahawks segment that you got booed more for Ichiro. A lot of people agreed with me. I heard, I heard dozens of people A lot of agreed. person. And we're back. The most important thing about those takes is that they have aged like a fine wine. Jared Kellenick somehow got even better after this. Coming off a streak of four consecutive games with home runs, Kellenick has already followed it up with three consecutive games of home runs. This We are talking like unprecedented territory for Jared Kellenick. I ask you the question. Seriously, partially seriously without knowing almost anything about young players across baseball. Trade value right now, if this is how we're judging young players, right? Kellenic has to be in, like, top 50 in the MLB. Probably. I mean, he was, you know, a top 10 prospect before he came to the major leagues. Obviously, the results the first couple of years were not what you hoped for or anticipated, but... That, I think, lends a little more credence to what he's doing now and the productivity. I mean, do we want to talk about the how how well he's playing right Absolutely. now? Do we, do we want to talk about how well Jared Kalanick's playing right now? It's all I want to talk about. This, to me, <laughs> is the Continental Classico of <laughs> conversations. Literally, I just, everywhere I go, I'm like in the office today, right? I was around human beings for almost the first time. And I'm like, Kalanick? Driving in the car down to uh, Luca's baseball practice, heard that Kellenic hit a home run. I screamed. It was visceral hearing about Kellenic homering. It's literally it. And immediately called me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I had to. Because I had missed that. I caught the double. I was listening uh, when he hit the double earlier in the game, but I had just gotten home for the NBA playoffs and hadn't gotten it up and streaming by the time he homered. Do you know the song Hannah Montana by Migos? It goes something like Hannah Montana, Hannah Montana, Hannah Montana, Hannah Montana, Hannah Montana. That is my brain and Jared Kellenick right now. It is over and over and over again. It is just, it's all Kellenick all the time, baby. This is, it's literally it. This is all I care about. Tell me how he's doing right now. So he's now at a 342, 395, 726 <laughs> slash line. That 1121 OPS would be the best in franchise there history. There we go. Surpassing Edgar Martinez's, Edgar Martinez's oh. 1107 in 1995. Was there a certain left-handed hitter that people really like in franchise history? 
Yeah, just ahead of Ken Griffey Jr., yeah. <laughs> oh, no. That wasn't the one I was referring to. <laughs> Uh, it is third in Major League Baseball thus far behind Brandon Marsh and MLB home run leader Max Muncy. Kelnick's seven home runs are tied for sixth in baseball, and his 14 extra base hits rank fourth. Somehow Max Muncy has 12 home runs and no doubles. That's kind of incredible. That's a, Max that's Muncy just has always 12 extra homers? It was either 11 or 12. Holy shit. Yeah. Yeah, is it 11 and no doubles? <laughs> Pete Alonso has 10 home runs, one double. But I do think the extra base hits for Kellenic kind of show the diversity of his hitting. It's not just that he's hitting home runs. He's hitting the ball hard in every capacity. He's hitting line drives, right? I mean, in today's <laughs> game, a double, a homer, a single. A diving catch robbing him of another hit. Dribble away from the cycle. There's no chance that Kellick doesn't hit for the cycle at some point this year because he's not just zero <laughs> oh, percent wow. chance. This, this reminds me of uh, when <laughs> when my buddy Jason Quick famously wrote that uh, it was a question of when, not if, Mason Plumley was going to get a triple double for the Blazers. Did he? <laughs> he did not. He actually did. I think end up getting a triple double in Denver after the trade, but. Uh, he he never did for the Blazers. He did come close a couple I, of times. It wasn't like preposterous, <laughs> but the win not if was a little, little extreme. I, those, none of those words were the words I was expecting to come out of your mouth. Mason, Mason Plumley and Triple Double were not the words. <laughs> I thought this was when I bet you that James Harden was going to score more than Kobe when he kept scoring like 60 and 70 routinely. Oh, that was a pretty good one. Uh, yeah. Famously didn't do it. Uh, but I, <laughs> I do not. have to ask, it's been like 25 days of Mariners baseball this year and like maybe like 15 good days for Jared Kelnick after the first week, right? <laughs> or it was on your birthday that Kelnick got good, right? I believe okay, so. Okay. So yes. we're at 15 days of good Jared Kelnick. And I don't mean to make this the conversation. It's not something I want to do, but I do think you have to ask, would you rather have, if you could go back in time and choose one? These 15 days of Jared Kalanick or the 10 seasons that Ichiro played for the Mariners. <laughs> like, why are, you, why are you the way you are? <sighs> I think you know my answer. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah we, we all know your, everyone knows your answer. No, honestly, the most important thing, this is the same as like we talk about the Russell Wilson trade. Whatever happened, in Mariners franchise history up to this point, right? A-Rod signing with a rival ALS team, uh, uh, winning the most games in uh, MLB history, only to lose in the playoffs after that, right? Ken Griffey Jr. requesting a trade to the Reds. Um, Unieski Betancourt. All of those things. <laughs> wow, you <just> not expecting <laughs> the Unieski Betancourt bingo scare to get checked today. All of those things that happen in Mariners history, positive or negative, right? We, we've got the, the six stadium home plate, everything about it. All of it was right. I don't know if that counts as Mariners franchise history. Baseball in Seattle. All of it is right because it led us to this moment for Jared Kalanick. So yeah, you is... cannot complain about anything in Mariners history because everything that happened in Mariners history led us to this moment where Jared Kelenic is hitting like he is. It is a beautiful thing. So Jared Kelenic's hard hit rate, this does not include today's game but this, because it's from baseball reference and not updated, 
58% uh, is what is the Max balls in play with an exit velocity of 95 miles an hour per, or more. Julio last year was at 51%. Wow. So I, I, I'm kind of sad that the excitement about Kellenic is almost slightly at the expense of Julio. But I don't I think we will know just, that. I mean, Julio's had I a mean, fine I think actually, season, but he hasn't he hasn't built upon what we saw from him last year. But there's going to come a no, moment where Julio puts it together and this offense is going to be scary. Max Muncy is at 50 percent thus far. That's what I'm saying. Which sometimes which I think with the, the balls, along with the lack of doubles, the ball goes out of the park, which is nice. And you want to do that. But Kellenic, it's almost like we talked about Griffey, right? In Griffey's prime, we were like, can Griffey Jr. isn't a home run hitter. Ken Griffey Jr. is a hitter, and sometimes the ball goes out of the park. I mean, Edgar, obviously, in terms of his proclivity for hitting doubles, also stands out in this regard. Like, he wasn't the kind of home run hitter that Griffey was, but... You know, Do they have league, league leaders for a hard-hit ball percentage or rate? Uh, probably somewhere, if I scroll long enough. Uh, I will, well, to fill, uh, while I'm looking that up... Uh, Mason Plumley had two career triple has two career. Oh triple wow, you're going back Detroit to Detroit Pistons. Okay, yeah. So there you I go. gotta say, Jose Caballero's hard hit ball rate has to be pretty okay too. I kind of like him. He is he's crushing it. I I don't love that he's taking uh, Sam Haggerty's place as the platoon second baseman against left handed pitching. Okay. But I get Hagerty, it. Haggerty he'll find a role. He'll rise again. Yeah. Uh, it does not appear that that is up as of yet. Okay. So. But 58% is clearly very high <laughs> and very good. Uh-huh. Do we want to talk about the other end of the spectrum? No. What is the other? Like we need to have a conversation what is about, the other end of the spectrum? <laughs> I feel like we need to, well, we talked, we've talked about the Mariners' second baseman and DHs. I feel like now we have to have a conversation about Chris Flexen. Okay. Who dropped to 0-4 with Sunday's <laughs> loss with an 8.86 ERA through four starts in place of Robbie Ray. The M's are 11-8 and in games that Flexen hasn't started. And in fact, given they also lost Robbie Ray's only start, 11-7 and when you take just that spot in the rotation. Man. <laughs> Somehow, they're very good other than those games. Uh, Flexen's fielding independent pitching is 6.6, up from 4.5 last season. So there's definitely been some bad luck in terms of giving up five home runs in 21 innings as compared to 17 last year and 137 and two-thirds, despite his fly ball rate being way down. And the batty average in balls in play, which is 361 up from 273 last year. But at the same time, his walks are way up. His hard hit percentage is way up. And Robbie Ray, still probably a few weeks away. Ryan Divish reported Tuesday that he was due to meet with doctors, could be cleared to begin throwing in Arizona. So... The Mariners could have skipped Flexen in the rotation on Sunday, but that would have gone against their goal of limiting the innings for Logan Gilbert and George Kirby this season. That opportunity won't present itself for, again for a while. I mean, I do think you have to wonder, like, at some point, does it get bad enough that it's worth moving Flexen back to the bullpen and recalling Tommy Malone to take that starting spot until he Ray made it is through back? Tommy Malone. He okay. did, yes. So. I'm... I just don't think Chris Flexen, he's not this bad. He can't be this no. bad. Yeah, and, and he can't be. At no point in his history is there necessarily, I mean, there's the 2021 season where he was shockingly 14 and six with a sub four FIP. But like, I, I don't know if there's any 
anything long-term in his background to suggest that he's more than a spot fifth starter bullpen rotation I mean, guy, I, but like, I think low end rotation, like the part of the logic that the Mariners were going to trade him this off season was like, basically he would be good enough to start for someone else. I think that Chris Flexen will have some better starts. <laughs> I think his ERA <laughs> bull, bull take is cut. not going to be near nine. And, and so I think this is the worst of it, I guess is what I'm saying. Like, I don't know if we're, we're yeah. at the, like, we need to have a conversation about Chris Flexen. He gets, like, two to three more starts. It's early in the season. It's April right now. It is a long... Well, two to three more starts may be all until Robbie Ray is back. So. But even, sure. That's fine. It's a long baseball season. It sure is. Except for Jared Kellenick, who will hit this way for the rest of the year. Exactly. <laughs> if not, maybe slightly better. Honestly, it hasn't even warmed up. Some of these opposite field homers... That's, God, I mean... So it's the ball. So good at baseball. All we right, we let's talk about the crack. Julio in the home run derby. How naive we were. Yeah. JK, given given the VP practice pitchers whiplash. VP practice. That's redundant. Uh, Kraken head to Colorado for Wednesday's game four. All square at two. Uh, last we recorded, they had won game one of the series. They then led early in game two at Ball Arena 2 nothing with Brandon Tanev blowing a kiss to the Colorado fans after scoring <laughs> we short-handed so for the second goal. So cocky in that moment. I was like, damn, cracking in four? <laughs> but the Avalanche scored three unanswered goals, including the winner midway through the third period. Then I feel like Saturday was the first time the Avalanche really looked like the reigning cup holders in the first Kraken playoff game ever at Climate Pledge Arena. Uh, a 6-4 to four win that saw them score twice in the first five minutes of the third period to break a 3-3 tie before both teams added meaningless goals late. And then the series was feeling kind of hopeless, I gotta say. Ah, hopeless? We knew that it was riding on a very important game four. Yes. I don't think it was feeling so, hopeless. I, I think you would have gone into that game saying that... I mean, Colorado's a very good team. Colorado had had some more explosive stretches than the Kraken had had. And I think maybe even still was kind of the case uh, in game four. But at the same time, I think you would have gone into that game saying to yourself, the Kraken are probably going to win this one. They're going to find a way. I assume they were underdogs in this game, even with the home ice and the motivation advantage. But uh, looking to avoid a 3-1 deficit, the Kraken got the opening goal from Will Borgen before a brutal post-whistle hit by Caleb McCarr on Jared McCann, which after replay drew only a minor penalty, although the Kraken did still cash in the subsequent power play with Daniel Sprong scoring for a 2-0 lead. The Avalanche again tied the score with a pair of second-period goals, this time both from Miko Rantanen. Neither team could find the net in the third period, setting up Everly's winner shortly into OT. Incredible. Sprong has sprung in Seattle. (laughs) There you go. Undoubtedly the greatest playoff win in Kraken franchise history. Uh, The bad news is McCann out for game five. Kraken coach Dave Haxtell told reporters post-game he expects his absence to last beyond that. After a disciplinary hearing on Tuesday, McCarr was assessed a one-game suspension for the late hit. 
and the Avalanche will be without their two-time All-Star for Game 5. So can you explain this rule to me? Because when I look at this, it doesn't, as a person who doesn't watch that much hockey, um, it doesn't seem like that brutal of a hit to me. It seems, it doesn't? I, well, I don't know, it kind of just looked like a hockey hit. I don't understand necessarily what makes it more brutal than another hit. And as far as I understand, it's because it was he was blindsided or not expecting it. And part of hockey so is the, that if you're like on the wall, you're expecting to get hit, so you're able to brace for it. Correct. And the puck, I believe, had gone out of play. I can't remember. It's possible that you know the that the goaltender had covered it, but play was stopped. The whistle had blown. It was well after the whistle had blown. But is the hit so it's is basically the hit like worse? I mean, like timing wise, I understand that situationally, but physically, yeah. is the hit worse? If the puck is out of play. Because you're not expecting it. Yeah. Like if you, if I'm bracing for a hit, I can deal with it differently than if I'm not expecting to get hit. Like that's just kind of human nature. I, I don't know what to tell you. No, on that I, mean, I understand that. It's just like kind of a strange distinction in a sport where you're being, you can don't be feel hit, like it is, I guess. Do you, I guess it's probably true. Like if in the NFL, right, if a player is being tackled, and they know they're being tackled. They're able to brace for being tackled and adjust to it. Whereas if you're just standing there and a 300-pound dude comes up and hits you, you're probably more likely to be injured. Yeah. No, that makes sense to me. So, it was, I mean, it was truly shocking when they downgraded that because they had called it a five-minute penalty. Why think, did they or... downgrade it? Scholars are divided on the issue, but maybe they didn't necessarily realize when the whistle was when they were reviewing it and had more time to kind of tell that before the disciplinary hearing that's that's the best i've gotten on that best idea i've got on that i should say sounds like i don't know some questionable situation i mean to go to so, go from i think they got it right eventually to a two-minute minor to a suspension is does it go to the to the league office or is it the refs yeah. in the building who make that decision Oh, I don't know. I don't know the hockey replay system well enough okay. to know that. But it's now a best of three. Obviously, Colorado has home, home ice for two of the three at Ball Arena, which we learned from Randy. They no longer make glass jars. What are you doing, Ball they don't Corporation? Make glass jars anymore? Yeah, you were you were in the bathroom when you said they make this? they make soda cans right here. These all say these all say Ball right there. Oh, yeah, really? you haven't seen that? I didn't know. It's right there at the bottom, like the barcode. This is a Bud Light Chilada with Colorado. Yeah. But like it says ball. I'm sure this Diet Dr. Pepper says the same thing. I think that's what they do now. Huh. Yeah. Uh, the teams have each scored 12 goals this far and separated by just one shot attempt with Colorado having 132 to 131 for the Kraken. So this has thus far been a completely even series. And, you know, the Kraken, they have a real chance here. Especially again with, obviously they'll miss McCann, who was their leading scorer. McCarr is not the Avalanche's leading scorer, but uh, that that does even things up considerably going into this game five relative to if McCarr had been out there and McCann had not. So, so this is tonight as you're listening to this game five. It could already have happened as you're listening to this, but is we're publishing this tonight? Hell yeah. Yes. All right. So it's getting serious. Also, it's opposite four NBA playoff games. So, <laughs> how much bandwidth I'm going to have to follow the Kraken is TBD. Four playoff games at the same time? Four. 
I mean, they're not all at the same time. There's but that night. Yeah. There's going to be two NBA playoff games, a minimum of two they NBA playoff games at any given time. Mercifully are not opposite the NFL draft. If yes, it would have been, been NBA playoffs, playoff NFL draft, and the Kraken, then it would have been over. Yeah. That would have been I, I kind of had a moment of last night when watching the Lakers have this like pretty epic comomeback, right? Che- at, at cheering for the Lakers. LeBron, like fountain of youth stuff at the end of the game, scoring these points, getting so much energy, and then being able to flip over to the Kraken and see them finish it. Uh, I was definitely kind of feeling like this is a really like it had had the feelings of a very special sports night. Yeah, definitely. All right, let's get into the roundup with the Sounders, who got a one nothing win Saturday against Minnesota United, a workmanlike win against a fairly negative Minnesota side. Sounders dominated possession, took 15 shots, just three of them on goal. After Jordan Morris and Freddie Montero came on for Hebert and Obed Vargas, the, Vargas, the Sounders found the back of the net with Montero setting up Albert Rushnak for a long-distance strike. Sounders then saw their fifth consecutive clean sheet to start the season, a new franchise record, fifth consecutive clean sheet at home to start the season, a new franchise record. Uh, Sounders played this one without Christian Roldan, still suffered sidelined by a concussion, Josh Atencio and Rel Rediaz. Rediaz now expected to miss the next four to five weeks after re-injuring his hamstring in training. Would expect the Sounders to be real careful for him, given the series of hamstring injuries he's had. And then also the current depth at striker with the ability to move Jordan Morris up top. The Brian Schmetzer just has a lot of options right now, a lot of players playing well, and that's a, a good place to be. And the Sounders with this win moved even with St. Louis SC atop the West in terms of points, although LAFC is just one point back with a match in hand, therefore has the best points per match. Those are the lone three teams in MLS with a double-digit goal differential. This week, the Sounders enter U.S. Open Cup in the third round alongside the bulk of MLS teams, hosting San Diego Loyal SC, a USL <laughs> side that post landed <laughs> that post landed Donovan and DeAndre Yedlin amongst its ownership oh, group. I was like, wow. <laughs> Not playing ownership group. It'd be very odd. There's got to be a possibility that I, I can't remember off the top of my head if he's still with Miami, but whatever Yedlin's MLS team <laughs> plays, the San Diego Loyal I see some divided loyalties. No pun intended. Uh, Donovan also serves as executive vice president of soccer for the Loyal, who lost one nothing to LA Galaxy in the third round last year. Uh, this game will be played at Starfire Stadium, and I expect we'll see a, a full-on reserve squad for the Sounders for this one. What league is the San Diego Loyal in, and why is Landon Donovan involved with it? And DeAndre Yedlin? USL. In the USL. I don't The Yedlin part I did not know about. Uh, you know, Landon Donovan kind of makes sense. Southern California ties, and it's easier to be part of the ownership group of a USL I believe he's team. he's from San Diego, right? An MLS Landon team. Donovan. I think he's from the LA area, but. I don't think know. that's right. I'm pretty sure he's from San Diego. Might be somewhere in between the two. There's, there's nowhere in between the two, if you ask any person. <clears throat> uh, the San Diego famed suburb of LA. <laughs> at the weekend, Sounders will be at Real Salt also, Lake the RSL. Loyal? That's the name? I, I look, you know, soccer teams in the US have names. Try harder, Atlanta RSL. 
ninth in the West standings, having taken just three points from four road matches thus far and sporting a dismal minus seven goal differential. There's 17 goals allowed tied for most in MLS. So it should be another chance for the Sounders to get points on the road. So there's no San Diego team in MLS, which is the answer to why Landon Donovan is involved with this team, that he is trying to get them to be an MLS team. Quite possibly, Okay, I figured it out. Well, Rain opened the NWSL Challenge Cup. Yeah, I mean, San Diego would be a logical market when they get to 45 teams in MLS. Uh, Well, Rain opened the NWSL Challenge Cup with a 2 0 win Wednesday at Angel City FC, getting both goals after halftime through Jordan Heidema and an LAFC own goal. They then dominated Chicago back in NWSL league play on Saturday, getting a pair of goals from both Bethany Balser, both within a five minute span midway through the first half, and Jess Fishlock. Megan Rapino also scored her first goal of 2023 in her longest outing yet playing the entire second half. Right. As the rain turned a one goal game much of the second half into a 5 2 route. Rain back on the road this weekend to face Racing Louisville, which is winless through four matches. The first three of them draws. Louisville suffered their first loss Saturday at Portland by a 2 0 final, uh, their second scoreless game out of the four. No real update beyond this, but uh, Storm Start training camp this Saturday, this Sunday. So we're we're gearing up here. WNBA we have to keep season the storm on the rundown coming. for the season. <laughs> <laughs> Can we just advance to the lottery? Uh, they're going to be kept on the rundown. Yes. <laughs> Can we have a situation where they have to win like two out of three games? Oh <laughs> uh, no! Like I, you know what? I I kind of this gets us to UW sports. And I kind of undersold UW baseball Hello. going at number nine Stanford last weekend. It was an admirable effort on Friday's opener, which outlasted Pelton Kessler. Wow. They played 16 innings. We're tied 1-1 before Tommy Troy hit a walk-off two-run homer in the bottom of the 16th to win it for Stanford. Ugh. Huskies had five innings of scoreless relief from Grant Cunningham starting in the 11th. But they bounced back Saturday with Kiefer Lewis. <laughs> Bounce back Saturday with Kiefer Lord striking out 10 in eight oh, scoreless yeah. innings of a dominant 9 nothing win go. before losing the rubber game of the series 8-6 right. on Sunday. Yeah. Huskies back home this weekend to face USC, which is just ahead of the 7-8 and eight Huskies in the Pac-12 standings at 9-7. and seven. They're definitely going to need at least one, one win this weekend to stay on the run. That's down. it? Out of three? Okay. Yeah. Don't get swept. I like every week to just set the mark of what it takes it's, to, stay on, to stay on the rundown. <laughs> it was like when B Fantasy Genius was like, how many how many batters should I strike out? And I'm like, two-thirds. Two-thirds of batters. And if he doesn't do that, I'll be disappointed. No Ivers. Uh, no what? Ivers. No, I, no Ivers. No. <laughs> He's too good for me to promise Ivers. <laughs> It's not like the basketball team, which ne- literally never wins. Um, well, you're not coaching this one. <laughs> I wonder what I could dial up to make the team lose. <laughs> uh, did you have something there? I thought I did. Well, I, I like uh, I like them. Every team having goals to stay on the rundown. <laughs> heading into each week. I mean, oh, I was going to say that if I wasn't doing baseball all weekend. This would be a beautiful day to go, or a beautiful weekend to go to baseball. To Husky Baseball Stadium? Yeah. But alas. I, th- I think this would be a great weekend. Baseball. I mean, you've got you've got basketball. You're in the same same position. 
Not exactly, but You've yes. Got basketball uh, upon basketball upon basketball. Four games tonight. UW softball, maybe four on on uh, Sunday for Game Seven. Very possible. UW softball took two of three again from number eighteen Utah in a thrilling series at home last weekend. They lost the opener two one despite Ruby Malin going the distance with Bailey Klingler's home run, the only score for the Huskies. On Saturday, the teams played extra innings after an extended rain delay in the bottom of the seventh. Finally, in the bottom of the ninth, Klingler sent everybody home with a walk off solo home there run for a six to five win. Sunday's series finale saw the Huskies arm's length of the Utes in a 5-3 win. At 14-7, the Huskies are now percentage points ahead of Utah at 12-6 for second in the Pac-12. The Utes will host first place UCLA this weekend. Okay. We're cheering for the Utes then. Uh, I think it's actually more important to stay second. Okay, so we're cheering for UCLA. It doesn't, doesn't sit right. Sunday... Sunday was senior day festivities for eight Huskies, including the bulk of the starting lineup. Klingler, Madison Husky, Sammy Reynolds, Kelly Lynch. These are the top four hitters in the order. Uh, Silent Rain Espinoza, Jidlin Olshin, Brooke Nelson, and Megan Vandegrift. Espinoza, Husky, Reynolds, and Vandegrift, all fifth-year seniors who utilized their COVID years. Well, Klingler, who played one year at Texas A&M before transferring, Lynch and Olshin have been four-year starters at UW. I mean, oh, these are names wow. that we've gotten used to for a long period. I had, I had not realized until I saw this just how it's like Deion Sanders took over as head coach. Just how big of an exodus there's going to be. I, I don't know if there's going to be the same incoming uh, transfers as Deion Sanders is going to see. So, I mean, this group has had a lot of success, obviously, and uh, going to be tough to replace. UW will play at home next Sunday against Utah Valley but has the weekend off from Pac-12 play before finishing their conference schedule on the road. Huskies also visit Seattle U this Wednesday. All right, this weekend, last Saturday, was the Husky Spring Preview. And to learn a little bit more uh, about that, we're going to bring in a special guest, his third Pelton brother. Well, to help us recap the UW football spring practice culminating in Saturday's spring preview, thrilled to welcome to the pod from on Montlake in the Say Who, Say Pod podcast, Christian Capel. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, so this feels like it was a very different spring practice than the last few that you've covered. I mean, three, two of the last three have been first year head coaches. There hasn't been a year where the starting quarterback job has been completely settled, like unquestioned since Jake Browning's senior year. So it kind of felt like there was a little less at stake did, in, in spring practice from my standpoint. Did it feel that way to you? It really did. It felt like going into it, you could pinpoint like two or three, maybe four competitions, position competitions where, okay, maybe there's a starting spot open or, but I mean, like halfway through spring, I'm looking at some of these battles and I'm like, okay, the the number three tight end competition is really interesting. <laughs> the backup center competition, the backup left and right tackle competitions are really interesting. Um, it, it seemed like, you know, going into spring, like you're looking at, they're replacing both guards and, and their center from last year. So maybe there's going to be some competition there. But they really rolled with, you know, Julius Bulow at left guard, Mateo Mele at center, Nate Kalepo at right guard. And there wasn't a ton of variation there. Um, cornerback, you know, new faces, Jordan Perryman moved on. They moved Michelle Powell over to Husky. He seems to be settling in there. So two new starters. But Jabbar Muhammad, you know, once he kind of shook off an offseason injury he had, 
he's in there with the ones. Elijah Jackson was kind of in there with the ones from the start. And when they roll that number one defense out there, it's been Jabbar Muhammad and Elijah Jackson. So it's like, okay, maybe, maybe those are the two, you know? So I don't think that coaches would say that anything's really like settled. There's always competition. Someone, you know, has a huge summer gets into August and they're a different guy, you know, they're going to, they're going to play the best player, but it did seem like it was more about just, I mean, Romo Dunze talked after the spring preview about how last year, this time they're still installing everything and they're kind of trying to get everybody up to speed on the way that they do things schematically on both sides of the ball. Cause it was different on both sides of the ball. And this year it, it was more about sort of building off that and, you know, getting more, detailed or more intricate with how you design certain plays for certain personnel packages or certain individuals. And so I, I think it very much was building on last year with all these guys they've got coming back who they kind of know about already while mixing in a, a few newcomers, uh, but mostly about, you know, it, it really felt like a year one to year two rather than, okay, it's a, it's a fresh start. And, you know, let's, let's see how everybody looks this spring. I mean, it's a scary thought offensively if they have more room to get better after what we saw last season. And we did see the opposite of that. You never know what to make of these spring games, and especially with the unorthodox scoring that they've adopted where it's not really a game necessarily between two split-up teams, but offense versus defense. But the defense ends up leading most of the way on Saturday, and it took a touchdown drive by three consecutive touchdown drives to finish the, the practice and a touchdown drive by the third string offense to give the offense the narrow 34-33 victory. Is that a good sign defensively where the Huskies are at? I think they have made progress defensively. I'd be really surprised if they're not better than they were last year. You know, by what degree? We'll see. And that that's going to kind of dictate yeah. like what they are as a team, right? You know, the offense was very vanilla on Saturday. I think the defense would argue that they were too. It's not like they were bringing a ton of like exotic blitzes or anything like that but they're not running their whole playbook all these spring previews spring games are televised and you know they're they're wary just like every team of showing too much so i think it was more about just like getting reps and and you know like caitlin DeBoer talked about it this is the 15th practice and the third scrimmage more so than this is a great big spring finale and it needs to be a game for entertainment purposes. And that's like the biggest thing to take away from spring finales anymore in college football is that it's, it's really not for entertainment. It's for whatever the coaching staff determines they want to do with their 15th practice. And it's, it's more about the, the reps and the skill building and all that stuff. But I thought the defense played sound. I mean, you didn't see, there was one coverage bust with the number two defense sort of late on the Denzel Boston touchdown from Dylan Morris, but for the most part, you know, I thought it was pretty tight, you know, and Boston drew a pass interference call on, on what could have otherwise been a big play. Romo Dunze is still going to get open and make plays because he's Romo Dunze. But, you know, I think you saw, you didn't see a lot of yards after catch. You didn't see a lot of poor tackling, which was an issue last year. I thought they improved as the year went along, but it was an issue. So I think some of the, the real trouble spots last season, you saw them kind of start to take steps forward defensively this year. But then I, I I wouldn't have guessed coming out of fall camp last year that they were going to be as as challenged, to to put it nicely, in the secondary as they were. So, you know, we'll, we'll see. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that really stood out, there were no official stats from this since it was just a, a practice and not a full-on scrimmage. But from the stats that you tracked and when you're were in your piece on 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 Montlake, that's a little, a little tricky to say, uh, it 
it reminded me most of Michael Penix Jr.'s performance at Cal last season, where we saw the high completion percentage, a lot of underneath stuff, low yards per completion. And that's sort of how, if you go back to the classic Chris Peterson, Jimmy Lake era defenses, they tended to play where, you know, they might be in the bottom third of the Pac-12 in terms of opponent completion percentage. But then you look at yards per completion, they're number one in the league by a mile and among the top teams in the country. And that... That, you know, kind of trade-off worked very well. And I think, you know, the the tackling that you mentioned on the edge is a big part of that. So, you know, that if if you can do that, you know, how much more difficult does that to make it for teams to score? Yeah, for sure. I I don't know that you're ever going to see them go like single high safety or or two deep safeties or whatever. Like that was sort of the Jimmy Lake calling card. One of those things that fans were really sick of by the end of their tenure and I kind of got why because they weren't great against the run and it seemed like well shouldn't you bring these guys down into the box but it also just seemed like the sort of thing that you criticize when things aren't going well because it's like oh, they've, they've played this way for six seven eight, I guess it was eight eight years now and uh had some okay defenses you know and some pretty good defensive backfield so maybe some of that was a little overblown but it did we were Alex Cook saying last year early on, like, yeah, the safeties are going to be playing way closer to the line of scrimmage and more involved in the run game. Corners, you know, they're they're going to play more man. They're going to be out on an island. And I think they struggled adjusting to that last year. And maybe it was less about adjusting to that kind of schematic tweak and more about it was not Trent McDuffie and Kyler Gordon, who are your guys who are adjusting to it. It's it's a bunch of guys who haven't played before and, and maybe aren't on that level. So um I you know, I, I don't know that I expect to see them like play this contained style where it's, hey, we're, you know, we're going to make guys, you know, just give them whatever they want underneath and, and finish plays and not give up big plays. Like they, they talk about wanting to be aggressive and get after the quarterback and take their shots and, um, you know, create big plays of their own. I think the key is just, are they going to affect the football in the secondary? That was the the biggest problem last year. They had, I want to say, like tied for their fewest interceptions in a full season since like 2008, maybe even going back to 2000. They were last in power five and passes defended. I mean, that's just a big glaring. Like you want to find a statistics that, that's going to tell the story of this season. I, I keep going back to that one. They just did not get their hands on the football. So I think it's it's going to be more about relying on those guys on the outside who are playing, you know, tight coverage who are playing maybe one-on-one. Um, to stick with their guy and you know be able to to knock a pass away or or intercept a pass to to give it back to their offense. That was kind of the you know the amazing thing. They were so efficient and explosive offensively last year. It's not like they had this defense that was giving them the ball back. You know, in in super ideal situations all the time. And without looking, I don't think they were like a bad field position team, but. Um, you know, certainly with a defense that creates some some takeaways, they could, you know, complement their offense even better that way. Definitely. One thing you mentioned briefly in passing, Michael Powell moving to the Husky position and then Dom Hampton kind of moving from there back to safety. Do you feel like that reflects a change at all philosophically in what they want out of that Husky position, you know, kind of the hybrid nickel slash safety, or is that just a product of the talent that they brought in elsewhere? I think it's going to vary year to year. Um, just on who, you know, who do they have who's more veteran and maybe has a better understanding of the the playbook and, um, you know, who, who what are the best skills of some of those guys? Because like uh, Mish Powell immediately, I think that, that you mentioned that Cal game, 
that was the I think it was his first game back after he'd missed some time due to injury, and you could immediately see like this guy tackles much more soundly in space. He's he's out there on the flats, you know. He's diagnosing those sort of like quick throws, you know, sort of in the the Elijah Molden, Miles Bryant vein. So I, I think he fits nicely in the slot, and um, you know, Dom Hampton looks like a safety. You know, like I I understand wanting, you know, and he seemed like a really natural fit for that Husky spot last year. He is big and he's got cornerback training. I mean, he was, I think he was a corner his first, you know, good two years at Washington and he's kind of practiced all over the place. So um, I understand why they thought he was a good fit there, but um, he does seem like maybe more of a natural fit at safety. Yeah, and that Cal game came immediately after the stretch where they allowed 39-plus points in three consecutive weeks defensively. So it, it certainly stood out at that point of the season. Uh, switching you know, sides of the, the ball back to offense, uh, one position battle that you didn't maybe talk about early on, and we didn't get to see the full complement of players uh, in terms of that battle that we'll probably see during the fall is, is running back. And maybe that's a place to also kind of talk about some of the, the newcomers, transfers on the roster who were out there and what we saw from them this season. So starting with, you know, how did the transfers getting them in the mix at running back? How do they change that? Even though Cam Davis, it feels like pretty solidly in there as number one right now. Yeah, we're going to have to see. I mean, Dylan Johnson really didn't do anything. I think there was maybe like his first and second practices. He was doing drills and saw him, you know, maybe in an 11 on 11 period. I don't think they were, were they in full pads that day? I don't know, but he was dinged up after that and didn't participate um, in pretty much the whole the whole rest of spring. So he's kind of TBD. You can tell that, you know, the coaches, when they talk about running back, even in saying that, you know, Cam Davis does stand out above everybody right now. And, you know, Ryan Grubb has, I think, even gone so far as to say like, hey, you know, he really took a step and looked like a lead back this spring there is always kind of the caveat of like, well, but you know, let's, let's see what Dylan Johnson does. Let's see Dylan Johnson practice and be healthy. And um, he certainly passes the eye test for sure. I mean, he looks like a guy who's going into his fourth year of college football, who's played significantly in the sec. Um, So I think he helps them from a, a physicality standpoint, just watching some of his highlights from Mississippi state. You know, obviously you can look at the numbers and see that he, he he's caught the ball a ton. They like that. Um, he seems like a pretty savvy runner, so he'll be a part of it no matter what. And then even Daniel Nagata, I think they liked the offseason he had. DeBoer mentioned him as kind of being a standout in, in winter conditioning. And again, someone who's played a ton and care, or at least has been in college football for a few years and, and has, has seen the field, kind of knows what it looks like um, and carries himself that way. He also was kind of dinged up. So you saw a little bit of him, um, but he was he was limited. So it did kind of, you know, Cam Davis was the the pretty clear number one all spring. And then Johnson and Nagata not really being available gave a lot of opportunities to Sam Adams, who I think, you know, just seemed like whenever he carried the ball, he made a play. You know, he'd, he'd ripped off a couple of long touchdown runs and seemed to make the most of his opportunities. I, I don't know where he fits in the rotation, but I know he's someone that, that kind of caught their eye last year, but didn't really stay healthy and um, an interesting athlete at that position. Tybo Rogers, true freshman. Um, I think they're going to have a hard time not playing him. You know, like that's their guy. That was their number one target in, in the 20, uh, 2023 class. They were really pleased to get him again. Another guy who, who did a lot in high school, ran the ball, caught the ball. Um, he, he, he's a, 
he looks like a, a a very confident, you know, tough player. Ryan Grubb talks about him sort of having an edge. Again, is there room for him in the rotation? You know, if you figure Cam Davis, Dylan Johnson, and, and Daniel Nagata are all going to be part of it, I don't know that you go deeper than that. Assuming that you know those are the the three guys sort of on the on the top of the depth chart, but um, they're not going to be able to keep him on the sideline for long. You know, if he's healthy and continues progressing, they really really like him. I know Kalen DeBoer on Saturday mentioned Will Nixon as being a guy who bulked up, who, you know, maybe they didn't talk about a ton throughout the spring as being one of their their biggest their guys who made the biggest improvement. But obviously they they kind of look at him that way. So, you know, he he's and you know, he when he came in, they actually announced him as a running back slash receiver. So another guy who's has got that ability to catch the ball and can do two multiple things. So, you know. I don't know if you can keep all those guys even in the program going into this season. They've got eight scholarship running backs. It's hard to see how all of them evaluate the situation and go, oh, yeah, like this is this is the best thing for me in my future. So we'll see. Um, right now, it does look like they've they've got a number of guys to choose from. You know, Cam Davis is is a fifth year guy. He played a lot last year. They kind of knew what they had in him. So he, I think, had reason to be confident that he could come into the spring and, and show that you know he should be a dude regardless. But for everybody else, when you go out and bring in two transfers, you know, two veteran transfers, especially Dylan Johnson, who they kind of had to fight for, um, was getting heavy pursuit from other schools closer to, to where he's from. That's never easy. They really wanted him. I think maybe the writing's on the wall a little bit, but when those guys aren't available and you get a chance to to practice, you know, and get opportunities all spring. Um, they've at least got a, a lot of film on a lot of different guys to consider. Quickly, you mentioned, you know, kind of the, the potential of one of those players transferring out at, during this kind of post-spring practice window, which we've already seen, you know, the the Huskies affected by that with Savelle Smalls. Do they need attrition in terms of numbers at scholarships at this point? I believe they are at... 86 committed off the top of my head. I can pull it up. I have it. I was just looking at this uh, yesterday. Um, they had, I think, I want to say they had 88 coming into the season or coming into the spring, rather. Um, Owen Prentice retired. Savelle Smalls transferred. So they they might be down right at 86 or 85. So I think they'll, they'll probably need um, one more. And then you consider, you know, are they set with their roster? Do they have needs, right, that they want to address in the portal? Were there any positions this spring that they looked at and thought, eh, you know, could use one more veteran guy or, or, you know, if if someone comes available who you've got the relationship with and, okay, yeah, I don't know that they were dying to upgrade this position, but this guy's right here and he's interested, so why not? There could always be a couple of those and, and maybe you need some attrition otherwise, but yeah, they're right. They're, they're right at uh, 85 or 86 at the moment, I believe. All right. One other competition that might not get a lot of attention now, but during the season it, it could is kicker a spot where you've been covered for five years with Peyton Henry. So what did you see at that spot? Yeah, it's Grady gross and Addison, Addison Schrock going at it. Uh, two, two walk-ons. Grady Gross was a preferred walk-on true freshman last year uh, who wound up taking over the kickoff duties. So I think they, you know, nobody really wants a kicker to handle all all three field goals, PATs, and kickoffs. I think they try to take take that one of those off of the, the place kicker's plate if they can. And 
that's what they did with Grady Gross last year. I got to think he's he's kind of the favorite, you know, the leader in the clubhouse. He's he again, you know, knows knows what it's like to to put on the uniform and and go out there and do his thing. I think he got maybe got one PAT last year. Schrock might have gotten one too. Now that I think about it, but um, I would imagine it would be Grady Gross who emerges from that as as the guy. He had some pretty um, pretty intriguing numbers, you know, for a guy that they got as a as a walk on a lot of kickers, you know, even good kickers come to, to power five programs as walk-ons. But um, yeah, that's a, you know, that that's kind of a, a sneaky area of, of concern, right? Like people don't kind of think about it a lot. And like you mentioned, you don't have to think about it when your, your kickers a red shirt freshman in 2018 and, and holds down the job and you know, you've got him for a while. I still think people didn't appreciate Peyton Henry properly, but that's kind 100%. of the case for most kickers, I think. I mean, you don't appreciate him until until he's gone, I think is unfortunately the reality of it a lot of the time. Yeah. I mean, you know, or until he 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 gets that redemptive game winner against Oregon. What a great full circle moment for him. Uh quickly one last topic. It this weekend with the NFL draft going to be pretty quiet from the Huskies standpoint because, you know, basically all of their most eligible prospects decided to come back for the 2023 season. That's, you know, a big reason there is so much excitement going into this season, but how, how different is this going to be kind of the last quiet year in a while? Do we assume that based on kind of the the depth of talent and, you know, next year in particular, looks like it could be a standout class. It sure seems like it. Yeah. It's interesting to watch their pro day and, all of the current players who are like sitting in chairs or sitting on the ground on the side watching and just kind of counting like all the potential, you know, first, second, third round picks who are in that crowd. Um, yeah. It kind of seems like if it's not Jackson Kirkland, it might be nobody this year, you know, maybe Henry Bainavalo. He was the only other guy invited to the combine. Corey Luciano, I think is, is a more interesting prospect than people might give him credit for. I thought he like was one of their more underrated players last year. Um, shoot uh Jordan Perryman tested really well and you know doesn't didn't get the senior year film that that he wanted but uh you, you know you never know it, which one of these guys might get an invite and catch on somewhere but it does seem like excuse me it'll be pretty scant as far as the draft goes you know next year will be a big one you've got presumably Romo Dunze and Braylon Trice and I would assume Troy Fautanu probably comes out um it's interesting all all the all three of those guys have eligibility left after this upcoming season because of the covid year but yeah i mean it, it's it, it seems like they're they're on an upward trajectory talent wise both in terms of their recruiting i mean i think this 23 high school class ranked around 25th or so which was progress over where they'd been the year before but also the transfer portal i think they're getting guys through the portal who increasingly are are going to you know have an opportunity to to be put in positions to to prove that they're pro players so um, you know, we'll, we'll see. That was kind of, you know, Chris Peterson's program didn't really show up in the recruiting rankings early on, but those guys wound up getting drafted in huge numbers, better numbers than any other Pac-12 team. Um, and then you get into those 18, 19, 20 recruiting classes that were ranked higher that are all still playing. And we'll kind of see how much, how much NFL draft production they get out of those. But um, yeah, it, it does it's the very rare year where they could, I mean, it's, it's possible they could go over in the draft yet. You, it, their program's in a position where people probably feel better about it than they have in a, a really, really long time. Yeah. It's an interesting disconnect. We, we joked uh, back in the, I guess, early winter that it was kind of like back in the NCAA football dynasty mode where you successfully convinced all of your players to come back, used all your points on that. Uh, before we wrap up, 
uh, mentioned on Montlake at the start. And when you first got let go by the athletic, I was certainly hoping to see this and mentioned, uh, on the pod that immediately subscribed as soon as I could. But, uh, for people who are not as familiar with your work, what sort of can they expect from on, on Lake and how might it be different than what we saw at the athletic? Yeah, I would say it, it probably won't be a ton different other than I can already tell, you know, my writing probably is a little more personal. Um, you know, I think when you're writing for a, a, a very set specific audience of people who are just really, really into UW football rather than, you know, there was a large element of that at the athletic, but also potentially, you know, a million some other people might read it and so you, you need to frame things and write things in a way that okay with this i'm not assuming that every single person who reads this is a diehard u-dub fan so i think it's a little more tailored now but you know the type of stories uh hopefully at the athletic i was i was writing stuff that was differentiated and kind of outside the box and um you know deep player profiles that take a little bit of time to report or you know, analysis that is, is more than just surface level. And, you know, I'm, I'm here and I have access to the program and I, I want to kind of take you behind the curtain on what I'm seeing and hearing and, and thinking. And, um, you know, I think I hopefully bring a, a perspective that's, that's a little bit unique just for how long I've followed this team and, um, how close of a, a attention I've paid over the last gosh, 25 plus years now. So, um, I'm, that makes me sound older than I am. I'm just going back to like, you know, I was a little kid watching on TV for, for a fair amount of that. But yeah, I would, I would count back to like 1990 for me. I was pretty young then. So I, you know, I, I, if, if you know much about the athletic, I would, I would say that it, you could expect coverage similar to the kind of what I was writing there. Um, as we get closer to the season and everything, I'd like to expand out a little bit to, you know, write maybe some more general PAC 12 stuff this, this spring, you know, kind of kind of dial in really close on spring practice just because that's what's going on right now. And also because this coaching staff, I think, provides a, a pretty healthy amount of access to being able to to watch and, and talk to guys and everything. So, um, yeah, I, I think on my about page, it says about three stories a week. And I settled on that number to not over promise. But, yeah, I think this spring it's been more like four or five plus the podcast. So feeling pretty good about how it's going. Yeah, I mean, it's been tough for me to keep up while I'm covering the NBA playoffs, certainly with everything you've been doing. Uh, one of the things I'm looking forward to, it may already be out by the time this interview is published, is uh, you, you wrote that before the spring preview, you were with Kaylin DeBoer as he was kind of going around the practice facility. So very excited to check that out. Yeah, it was uh, it was interesting, you know, illuminate. I kind of had the idea, like, people have done plenty of, you know, day in the life stories of coaches, athletes, whatever it is. i shadowed um jen cohen for for a game for the byu game in 2018 i think um watched the game from her suite and kind of went you know kind of did the same thing went around what's an ad's job like the day of a game um and so i just kind of thought well what's you know what is what does the head coach do the day of the spring game you know because we think about it as kind of this event or this spectacle but there's there's all kinds of other things going on they have a bunch of recruits in and stuff and so it was it was interesting to to just sort of get a sense for what the rhythm is, all that's going on, you know, even for this this thing that it's it's an event, but it's really more like a practice. Yet there's still you know a, a long list of uh, uh, on the itinerary for the head coach to check off. So it was it was interesting to kind of get some of that perspective. Yeah, and I think that's the kind of longer form piece that you know is not 
immediate news reporting that that sometimes you have that you will have the ability to do that I think a lot of other people won't and we've seen the response has been tremendous in terms of on want like already becoming one of the highest paid sports substacks it's been awesome to say yeah it's um you know I had an idea that that there was there was a paid subscriber base there that were interested in in kind of following me to the next step assuming that there was going to be a next step but I'm, I'm not sure I would have predicted the uh the response so far i've been i've been very pleased and, and certainly very grateful yeah well i i can't recommend it highly enough thanks so much for taking some of your time out to uh share your expertise all right thank you kevin you did all the podcasts we did beforehand we did all of the conversation about continental classico before bringing in christian capo and having an actual good <laughs> conversation uh let so thanks again to Christian. Great stuff from him on the Huskies. Looking forward to the uh, season this fall. Let's wrap up by talking about the Seahawks a little more in the NFL draft. I mean, obviously, we covered a lot of ground with Danny and Mike Sean last Friday and learned a lot. I what did you think about Mike Sean's response to your question about whether the Seahawks' interest in quarterbacks was a smokescreen? When he said absolutely not, but also summarized right. that. He doesn't think the Seahawks will draft a quarterback because they like Geno Smith. That I mean, that's kind of like the two perspectives, which is they're being totally honest about their interest in quarterbacks, if not very public. But they also really like Geno Smith. So I feel like in straight up NFL draft style, mock drafts, chatter, rumors, etc. There's literally nothing we can make of it. Because it's completely contradictory intel, depending on which person you you read or listen to. I mean, it's either the Seahawks are definitely going to take Jalen Carter or the Seahawks are not going to take Jalen Carter. The Seahawks are very interested in taking a quarterback or the Seahawks are not interested in taking a quarterback. Like, I, I, I don't know what to glean from any of it. Like, some of it will look prescient in hindsight. But some of it will inevitably look very wrong. And there will be people who are very well connected who will just be wrong because as a draft happens outside of the first pick, it's pretty unpredictable. But but even outside of the unpredictable nature, like, look, we have a decent idea of who's going to be available. It's not the 20th pick where that's all over the board. Like, there's only so many different scenarios, realistically, that the for the first four picks. But and even then, I, I think... Because just saying quarterback or not quarterback is not exactly it. It depends on who the quarterback sure. is. But one of the things that did happen after we had that conversation on Friday is a lot more chatter about Levis going second overall to Houston, which would increase the odds that C.J. Stroud drops and certainly make it, you know, unless Arizona is able to find a trade, very likely that one of Stroud or Richardson is out there for the Seahawks. I, I and again this is this is not saying that Mike Sean is wrong. I think he's right about both points. I think the Seahawks are serious about looking at quarterbacks, and I think the Seahawks also like Geno Smith. And yep. that's part of why I think there's a contradictory intel out there. I think that the Seahawks in the building, there are a lot of people in an NFL front office and who are privy to the conversations or whatever. And some people are probably saying, Hey, one of these quarterbacks, I I feel Again, from the outside, knowing what the Seahawks like, I think Anthony Richardson feels like the type of quarterback that the Seahawks would be into. Makes sense. And I believe the Seahawks when they say that this is an unprecedented 
spot for them to be in to take a very, very skilled athletically quarterback. Uh, and also, I believe the people who are like, they're going to draft Jalen Carter. Like, I just kind of think everybody's right until it happens. And that's why the NFL draft is both fun and also stressful. Um, and and really, really hard to predict. I've read as much as I possibly can. I've listened to podcasts. I've read things. I'm scrolling through Reddit. Like, I'm doing everything about the NFL draft. And I do not feel like I have more of an understanding of where the Seahawks are going to go. I think the only two picks, which this could change at any point, that I feel I'm I think very likely that the Panthers are going to draft Bryce Young, number one. And I think the Colts are gonna somehow find a way to get Will Levis. Those are the only two things where I'm like, that's it. So you don't think that Will Levis is gonna go number two? I do not. I I think that the Texans I, I who the fuck knows? I don't know. I think there's a good chance that the Texans draft a defensive player. And I or that they draft CJ Stroud. I don't really buy that Will Levis is going number two. I mean, the confusion for the Seahawks is certainly reflected in the NFL draft props at FanDuel. Five players have lines of plus 700 or lower. Uh, I think when you take out the VIG, it is, uh, is being done on Twitter that gives you know better than 10% odds for all of these players. Jalen Carter is still the favorite, but Anthony Richardson, Will Anderson Jr., Tyree Wilson, and even Stroud in the mix, all better than 10%. And yesterday, I talked to you, and I, I was 100% convinced that if... And the reality is, that's assuming they draft a player. I don't know if you saw the the post that there have been almost no trades within the top 10 in the last handful of years. I did years, see that. Uh, which I was kind of surprised by. I mean, there was a trade on draft night. On yes. draft day, yeah. I was going to say, there was a trade in the top 10 this year. Uh, but on draft night, there hasn't been that many trades in the top 10. It, it's a tough place to sort of match value. Uh, so I understand that. But when there are a lot of quarterbacks, I think it makes things maybe a little bit easier. I don't know, but there have been a lot of quarterbacks in some of these other drafts. We just don't fucking know. <laughs> That's it. I don't think the team knows. I think if Willie Anderson is there, I could see the Seahawks being very excited to draft him. But the the team does know by this point they have like a board. That's what they know. And we, we just don't know what their board looks yes. like. Uh, one of the other things Mike Sean wrote about today is the money aspect. And we had talked before about John Schneider saying at the combine that they were basically tapped out in terms of cap space. We've pointed out that in terms of the effective and then cap they signed space Bobby estimate from, <laughs> yeah, the effective cap space uh, estimate from over the cap, they are negative after you account for like they're over the cap after you account for the money that they would have to spend to sign their current draft picks. One of the things I hadn't really paid attention to until Mike Sean highlighted it is that Schneider also said they're kind of tapped out in terms of cash, which makes it difficult to restructure. Now, obviously, that's accounting for the draft picks they have. It's not like they're going to be unable to sign, you know, pay the signing bonus for a draft pick. But that does make it more challenging if you're planning to like restructure contracts or extend Noah Fant as a way to bring down his cap number. And that does raise the possibility of them trading down to kind of reduce how much the the their first round pick is going to hit the cap, which is something like John Schneider talked about several months ago in one of his uh, sports Seattle Seattle sports segments, 
that like one of the differences in trading down from fifth is that the money differences are much bigger is compared to like when you're going from you know 25th to 29th or whatever what they've done in the past like that's actually pretty marginal at that point in the draft what was the pick i mean ben has the chart of basically where outside of quarterbacks where uh whatever excess value where the value matches the contract the most what was the pick that was the best most exceeds most exceeds the the value you don't want it to match you want it to be better in the draft but it was still a first uh, the, round pick, right? And it's like teens. Yes, correct. There's also an odd kink. We talked about this earlier where the 33rd pick, because there's such a big drop off from the first round salary scale to the second round the salary scale. Second pick this year, though. <clears throat> yes. But the first pick of the second round is actually more, much more valuable than the last pick of the first round. No, I think the 32nd pick is a very important pick this year. So. Uh, and again, it's a player earlier. You get for the money, you get a player who's hypothetically one player better than in the past. But do you feel like with a trade down, obviously the Seahawks shouldn't take like negative value for it. But if there's not a trade where we look at it and we say, "Whoa, I can't believe they got all 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 of this from the package." But it's kind of just like it's like a solid C plus as far as value. Do you still think that is worthwhile for a trade down? Well, it depends who's on the board. To me, the board is, what is who's the player. So to me, the board is it's CJ Stroud, Willie Anderson Jr. You think ahead of Bryce Young, Those, CJ Stroud, or we're just assuming Bryce Young's gone? Well, I'm just yeah, I'm okay. just not counting Bryce Young. I haven't really spent much time thinking about Bryce Young because the possibility of him becoming a Seahawk is remote. Uh, it's them two, and then de- the debate to me about whether the trade down starts with Anthony Richardson. What about Carter? And if you're not, if you're not going to take Anthony Richardson, trade down immediately. If you're going to draft one of the defensive players who's not Will Anderson Jr., trade down because I just am not convinced enough on any of them individually, including Jalen to Carter. make them better. I I think I made clear at the live show I have major questions about Jalen Carter based on his pro day. Don't you think, based on his, pro, it still feels a little bit like we're judging one day versus, uh, you know, we're judging the most important day to his future financial earnings of his life, and he wasn't prepared for it. I look, I I'm happy to be wrong about Jalen Carter. I hope that he proves me wrong, especially if the Seahawks draft him. But that's not a bet I would be willing to take. At that point in the draft, the player last year that I was maybe very... at, and maybe at the eighth pick, I would feel differently about exactly. that. Exactly, but uh... I think Tyree Wilson could be had. I mean, it was funny initially. I was like, "This is a four-player draft or whatever." It's just like early on, you think that there's an order to things, and then uh, we haven't been at the top of the draft that often. You know what I mean? I haven't paid that much attention to the top of the draft because we're usually looking at players that are fucking LJ Collier. You know what I mean? Like we're usually talking about the second, third tier of players. Understanding how the top of the draft evolves is very interesting because right at the beginning, I was like, this is the Seahawks have the fifth pick and it's a four player draft. And now I'm like, there's probably like 12 good players. There's 12 players. I mean, I don't think there's 12 players within the same tier. I mean, there's two cornerbacks, which I would be surprised if the Seahawks spent a top pick on. But I think there's like 10 to 11 players that are around the same tier. 
And if they got Tyree Wilson with the whatever later pick. I just don't think Tyree Wilson is as likely to go later as you think. Like, Where does he go? He Tell suddenly me has where the he second. He suddenly has the second best odds at number two. After Will Anderson or Stroud? No, after Will Levis. Will Levis. Again, well, the Will Levis thing is the better the market thinks it's Can real. Can we mock this draft? Mock this mock draft this out for just one second here. No trades. Top six, seven, something like that. Bryce Young is number one. Okay. You think Levis is number yeah. two? He's number two in terms of the DraftKings model. King's model. Whether that's meaningful, I don't know. I'm a little more inclined to believe it after Paolo Mancaro surged. His number one odds surged the weekend before he supposedly found out. He said he didn't find out until the day of the draft, but somehow the market knew. So are we putting Will Levis at number two? I feel like we should follow it for this. Okay. Three is Will Anderson to the Cardinals? CJ Stroud is actually the most likely number three they're, pick. According they're to factoring in a trade there, though. I don't, I don't want to do that necessarily because I think that complicates things a little bit too much. All right, well, Tyree Wilson and Will Anderson Jr. have the same odds at... So we have to decide which of those those two it I, is. I think we'd have to give them Will Anderson. Okay. I think you just play it safe. Four, then are we going CJ Stroud to the Colts? He is number two for them after Will Levis, so yes. Okay, the Seahawks have the fifth pick. Jalen Carter's on the board. Anthony, Anthony Richardson, Richardson is on board. the board. Tyree Wilson's on the board. Yeah. So even starting right there, the Seahawks are in a pretty good place, you would think, for value. But then... Look, if that's the situation, I would love to trade down with the Raiders to that's seven. That's what I'm saying to you, is looking further down. Okay, you trade down with the Raiders to seven. Who do the Raiders take? Richardson? Presumably if they're trading up, it's to take a quarterback. One okay, so they take Richardson. The Lions, do they take Jalen Carter or... They probably take Witherspoon. De- Devin Witherspoon. Okay, no. so we're at seven now. Tyree Wilson is still there. Correct. And... And uh, Carter is still there. And Jalen Carter is still there. That's what, kind of what I'm saying, though, right? Could you go even further, though, right? Who else is after that? Number eight is Atlanta. Who they're most, a lot of noise about Bijan Robinson. Lowest odds, Bijan Robinson. Yes. So okay, who's next after that? Chicago. Peter Skaronsky. Uh Jalen Carter is their lowest odds. Or Jalen Carter. Tied with offensive lineman Darnell Wright. Oh, and who Darnell Wright, I think I've seen a lot of chatter about going very high, possibly rising ahead of Skronsky. All I'm saying to you is that there could be a Tyree Wilson Tyree Wilson landing spot, and then at 10 is the Eagles, and you'd have to think the Eagles are basically in the business of one of the linemen, defensive linemen who are left over, right? Their lowest odds are the offensive linemen, Skaronsky and, and Paris Johnson or, Jr. Or I was going to say an offensive lineman. If Jalen yeah. Carter is there, but, the Eagles are going to draft Jalen Carter. There's just no doubt in my mind. Yeah, I mean, I'd say, like, if you were thinking how far down do you want to go to get your choice of players, number nine is probably the lowest you'd feel comfortable going. At number nine, there will probably be a pass rusher, whether it is Tyree Wilson or Jalen Carter, slightly different pass rusher. Is that Sox guy? But still. Wow, yes. what an appearance. Making make a carry. Yeah, that's incredible. The thing you want to have if you're the Seahawks, or possibly Anthony Richardson, the thing you want to have if you're the Seahawks and you want to trade down is you want offensive linemen going higher 
because they're not Correct. in the business of drafting a tackle, obviously. And you want yep. fucking Bijan Robinson getting drafted. Like Cor- corners, I think, would also be good for the Seahawks, them going to and corners. I'm not going to rule out the Seahawks taking a corner, but because there's a difference. I don't think it's the top of their priority in list. Drafting Anthony Richardson with the fifth pick, or and I think I feel like the Titans might. I don't know. I'm a little skeptical about the Titans and Anthony Richardson, but it like what is the furthest back that you can go and say, okay, we almost certainly can get Anthony Richardson? Or do you trade with a team like the Eagles and you're like, we know that they're going to go draft Jalen Carter. I don't know if they'd be interested in moving up. I guess, do you hear what I'm saying, though? Like, one of these pass rushers, whether it's Wilson, whether it's Carter, whether it's possibly Will Anderson, is probably going to fall. Or one of these quarterbacks is going to fall. So, I think you could move back and still end up with a very, very good player. And I I think that's kind of like the draft. Everybody we've named, plus Christian Gonzalez, is kind of like, that's the the A tier of the draft. And maybe Will Anderson and Bryce Young are in a different tier. But also, I feel like that we don't fucking know, right? From everything we've heard. That's why it's usually beneficial to trade down, is people over exactly. overrate their confidence From in being able to pick the right everything player. Everything we've heard all year, Will Anderson is the pass rusher. Jalen Carter was the pass rusher. C.J. Stroud was the quarterback. Bryce Young was the quarterback. And over time, some of those players are, are – falling is not exactly the right word because we just don't – we didn't know where they – we were making it up where they were beforehand, right? I don't think we were making it up. But but it's sort of like – it takes time to, to match the – how NFL teams are thinking and feeling with how the public is seeing that. I mean, Miles Murphy was a top five pick for a lot of the year. I don't – I don't wish to match with what NFL teams are seeing and thinking because that's, that's they're seeing thinking that we are. might draft Bijan Robinson in the top. You 10. don't do a mock draft based upon uh, what I would do. You know what I mean? Because sure, we're trying that's to not understand the public. That's members of the media do mock drafts, not the public. Yes. So I guess from this exercise, do you now hear what I'm saying that the Seahawks might be able to get a very good pass rusher or a very good quarterback in the closer to 10, 11? I've never not thought that. I mean, look, the the way do you have success in the draft? Or do you think there's a drop-off? Can you confidently tell me that there is a drop-off between Will Anderson I mean, and Tyree Wilson? Because the Texans I, clearly are talking about taking Tyree Wilson number two. Will Anderson statistically projects way better than Tyree Wilson. Okay. So, I again, that's why my board is Stroud, Anderson, Richardson question mark trade down. So that that would be your that board. would be your preference if go, going into draft night, if if you could choose one of Stroud or I mean I think if Stroud was there at five I think I I don't know if the Seahawks would take him. I think the Seahawks would love to trade that pick if CJ Stroud was there at five. I mean you would potentially get a haul if Stroud was there at five. I, again, the way to succeed in the draft is to have a group of players you like as opposed to we have to get this one specific player. And then whoever is there is the best value is who you take. Do you think a haul so. includes a 2024 first round pick? Depends how far down they go. Because if the Raiders are but moving would, up from seven to draft Stroud, no. there's not there's no I, way that that yeah, includes that. To go two spots, no. But what if it's just like, it's not the, two spots, it is CJ Stroud or not CJ Stroud. 
I mean, if you can get a, a 2024 first, first for moving down two that would spots. Be incredible. <laughs> and then you still would be like, able to draft you, a pass rusher. It would be like, I mean, it would it would be more or fruit possibly of the Russell Wilson trade tree, but it would be like, it would be like a second Russell Wilson trade, basically. You just keep spinning it forward and constantly having future first round picks. I mean, this is my whole theory. If I if I actually ran an NFL team every year, I would try to trade a a draft pick in the first three rounds for a pick the round higher the next year. Constantly, because part of the reason that teams don't do that, and that's why I think the Seahawks are kind of uniquely positioned to do it this year, is like, but we have to have our full complement of draft picks this year. But if you do it once. Then you still have your full complement of picks. You can do it the next year and still have the full normal complement of picks. So you just spin it forward infinitely. That was basically what I did when I ran teams in Madden. I mean, exactly. It's like that's that's when people talk about things being like a video game. If you put up like crazy numbers, they're like, these are video game numbers. It's like not actually. The thing that is no. video game like is being able to trade draft picks for future draft picks that are better. Because <laughs> I've done it all the time, and I've played 2K, and I've ended up with the first four picks in the draft before. You know what I mean? Like that—that that is the video game like thing that you can't actually. It's just in reality, it doesn't happen. But if you could, I mean, the real incredible thing would be Sam Hickey would have done it. Would be to turn the 20th pick into a first round pick next year. Even because yeah. I would love to trade with a team that thinks they're going to be good. There's nothing that is to me. <laughs> The best thing you can find is a team that thinks they're going to be good. Of course. I will always bet on whoever thinks they're going to be good not being good. The problem is a lot of times, sometimes the Seahawks think they're going to be good and trade two first-hand picks for Jamal Adams. But it's okay, because like you said earlier about Jared Kelnick, that led us to the Russell Wilson yes. trade, and everything that led us to the Russell Wilson trade is good. That was uh, a good exercise, though. I feel like that was a good draft exercise, talking them through. On that note, I think we're going to have a post-first-round pod on Thursday. Absolutely, we are. We might have a and we then, might have a post-first-round pod. We might have a post-first-pick pod. Uh, well, the the Atlanta Hawks uh, probably eliminated the possibility of a post-first-pick pod. But if we draft Anthony Richardson, I'm doing it solo. <laughs> It's going to be me and Danny Kelly. I'm going to find him. And it was editing this podcast that you're doing by yourself. I'm going to walk the streets of LA. Talking, just pontificating about it. Mike could edit edit it. He he does that. So I guess that checks out. So wouldn't be the first time. Uh, And and maybe a a post-completion of the draft podcast next Monday. Sunday. Monday morning? Well. It'd be in your in your inbox Monday morning, up Sunday night probably. So no shortage of draft content coming from the Pelton cast. <laughs> uh, we're giving you a lot to listen to. Hopefully you're out doing activities, taking advantage of the Seattle summertime because we're we're giving you a lot of podcasts. <laughs> and tomorrow, keep an eye out for that link for Talking Taco Time merch available for a very limited time. Very li- this is a one time pressing of this merch, limited quantity. Uh, it'll be it and it's gone before new merch is here. Now or never. On that note, thanks for listening. Thanks. Oh, oh, participant Tristan is having a problem. (laughs) (laughs) Participant Tristan is having a problem. (laughs) Seeing myself 